0: Woo doggy! It has been a bit of time since we last met, my dear listeners, but I am not going to own up to that. Welcome to A Step Into History, where we do that of which I've just spoken about, stepping into history, the whole purpose of this podcast. This is episode 34, and we've been in ancient Greece for the past few episodes, and guess what? We're not even close to being finished. So buckle up, y'all, because here we go. Where we last left off, my lovely listeners, we were chatting about the ancient city of Troy, the stories of Troy, whether it be fact or fiction or what have you. What we discovered is that there was most possibly a great city of Troy in the land known today as Turkey. Not the the poultry, but the the place. But are all the stories true of this tremendous place of Troy? Most likely, but they might have been a little bit exaggerated because the different stories about the different gods and such. But there's also the possibility that... some parts were were more true than others, and then we had some chatting times about the Trojan War. Like most of the episode last time was about that. Was the battle as monumentous as the stories tell? Was it really even in a war? Was it was it really caused by the Helen of Troy running off, or connecting some other stories? Helen of Troy being the daughter of Zeus, we know that Zeus was a a god in the mythological Greek stories. And that she was the most beautiful woman of Greece, and she was carried off by Theseus, but then rescued by her brothers. And that she was a sister of a person's name that I cannot pronounce Clitaminestra. I'm going to say that one. And this sister married Agamemnon, who was the king of Mycenae or Argos, which we do know is true. And then Helen of Troy, we call her Helen of Troy, that's how she's known. She had a bunch of suitors, including the famous Odysseus, but she chose a guy by the name of Menelaus, who was Agamemnon's younger brother. Then, during an absence of Menelaus, she fled, or was kidnapped, I'm doing air quotes again, I don't know why I keep doing that. She fled to the city of Troy with Paris, a a person, not the place, who was the son of the Trojan king Priam, which was the leading cause of the Athenians attacking Troy, but then Paris gets killed, and now Helen then marries his brother, Diphobus, who she then betrayed to Menelaus once Troy was captured. Then Menelaus and Helen return to the mainland of Greece, sparta more, more more precisely where they lived happily ever after well until they died anyways did this really happen who is to say for truly because we don't really know i mean it's possible that was just a quick summary of how of troy we didn't go over that very much there's a lot more in that story but i really try to condense that down into a little tiny version there's other variants of that story too which is i find pretty interesting i'm going to share with you guys right now one story goes that in her widowhood she gets driven out by her stepsons, and then she flees to Rhodes, the little island. Then she gets hanged by the Rhodian queen, Polly. Oh, I can't even say this name. Polly, so there's an X in there. How do you pronounce that? No idea. But we'll pretend it's Polly. So she gets hanged by Rhodian, Rhodian queen, Polly, in revenge for the death of her husband, name I can't also pronounce, Teplomos, and this is in the Trojan War. Then there's another variant of the story from the poet uh, named Stichorus who says that she and Paris were driven ashore on the coast of Egypt and that Helen was detained by the king Proteus. Then Helen carried to Troy or was carried to Troy. Uh, the, the Helen that was carried to Troy was just a phantom. The real one was recovered by her husband from Egypt after the war. This version was actually used a lot by Euripides in his play called, yep, you guessed it, Helen which was performed in 412 B.C. Was all this true? Was this story of Helen of Troy true? Oh, we don't know. Do we know if the stories that I told you last episode, if those were true? <laughs> no, we don't know. But it's fun. It's things that were written in historical times. This play that I was just talking about was written in 412 B.C. That's still considered ancient history. Anyhoozle, That's what we discussed last episode, if you were wondering, just trying to catch you all up, but the thing that needs to be brought to attention here is that this was the time period that was designated the beginning of the Greek Dark Ages, and that is where we are going to start this episode, right about now. Wait for it, now. Part Now I'm just joking. I'm not going to do the parts because there's going to be a bunch of parts. It's how the podcast works. I can only record up to a certain amount. Then I got to take a break. Plus, sometimes I forget to breathe. Now we're not going to do the parts, but this is the start of the podcast for you guys. This is where we get into the nitty gritty of things. What we need to talk about here is what exactly constitutes a dark age. Again, I'm doing the air quotes. I have to voice that because you all can't see me. Can anyone guess what dark age means? What constitutes a dark age? Well, since you are listening and I can't see you, I will not be giving you a chance to answer, and this is just a podcast, so you you can only hear me. For all you know, I could just be a pillar of fire with hammer hands. You don't know. But what I want you to do is just think about those terms, dark ages, and pile them together. What comes to mind? Maybe beheading of kings. Maybe Braveheart stuff. Probably castles made of stones medieval ages basically right now I want you to think about the Greek Dark Age think about the time period that we're kind of in if you remember from the the end of the Trojan War think about the Greek Dark Age what would that be like but then think about this the medieval ages or the Middle Ages happened from 500 to 1400 ish AD this is after the fall of the Roman Empire but we won't get into that just yet because we're not there we're in ancient Greece still These Greek Dark Ages, and when I say the Greek Dark Age or Dark Ages uh, because there's more than just one year, it's basically the interval of time between the collapse of the Mycenaean civilization, which is 1200 BC, and then the Greek Archaic period around 800 BC. These two time periods, the collapse of Mycenaean civilization and Greek Archaic period, right in between those two is the Greek Dark Age. If you've been paying any attention to this podcast or this last episode that I had, we talked about the Trojan War that supposedly took place roughly around 12th or 11th century BC, and that's the connection that I'm trying to make with you guys. I even said it in the last episode a bunch of times, and if my memory serves correctly, which it doesn't always do this, but it was part of the title of the whole entire episode. Trojan War, Dark Ages. Connection. Get it? Got it? Good. The Dark Age era, or the Dark Ages... Was not so much, was not very similar to the medieval times that we know about from this more closer to our time period of medieval times, but it all began this dark agent in Greece with a huge catastrophic event. The collapse of the Mycenaean civilization might not think, seem like a huge thing to you all, but it was pretty big. This is when all the major Mycenaean regional centers fell out of use after suffering a combination of destruction and abandonment. We're going to be exploring this in this episode. The Trojan War that we talked about in the last episode could have been one of these destructional events that I'm talking about. The city was burned to ashes, and they probably took those ashes and burned them again, making more delicate ashes than they possibly took and burned even more, which would then decompose into CO2, calcium oxide, silicon dioxide, and potassium oxide. But this isn't a science podcast, this is a history podcast, I'm just telling you what they could have done. Because there are actual remnants of ashes in the layers of the city of Troy. The cities that were built during the Mycenaean Age, that were once buzzing with business and people and everything, are now abandoned, they're destroyed, just empty. The great palatial centers of the Aegean world came to a violent end. Now Britannica.com is one of the websites I go to for a lot of my information, I really like that website, and I also like to take quotes from them too. Now They say it best, they say, Both internal dissension and foreign invasion seem to have played a part in this development. And if the exact course of events is still obscure, the end result is quite clear. Greece was severely depopulated and impoverished. End of quote there, just so you know. Greece was this huge place. The Mycenaean civilization was incredible. The ancient Greek world went from flourishing luxury and art to just nothing being created. Yes, archaeologists have discovered art and luxuries the previous age had the Minoan and Mycenaean but there were no more wall paintings being made at this time there's no artwork being created or anything to show that these people were using any type of technology besides what had already been set in place now you might think oh this is just a short stint of time but the next time frame that archaeologists found any type of artifacts to show to progressive people is from 900 BC roughly around that time this is almost a 300 year gap roughly around 300 years, that's just nothing. To put this a little bit more into perspective for you guys, the Declaration of Independence was signed 246 years ago. That's from this year, this episode's posted, which is 2022. Think about everything the United States has done and developed and changed and progressed into in less than 300 years. During the dark ages of Greece, nothing. There's like different changes that happened, but nothing that was progressing. The grand palaces and the sprawling kingdoms that had defined life in the Mediterranean just deteriorated. And only a few decades after the start of the decay process, it seems like everyone just quit. Or maybe possibly that a deadly plague just took over and people just died. Maybe there was some infectious disease that made everyone give up. Or some huge disastrous disaster that happened. Either way, there is a large gap in time that we know people were alive but there were no forward thinking happening. Thinking, that's a new word I just came up with. You're welcome. The Bronze Age, which was the Mycenaean age, the aesthetics from this age was lost. The Greek peoples lost everything, even the knowledge of writing, that's huge. They they forgot how to write. The saddest part is that this is all up to speculation and whatever archeologists can find, which isn't a whole lot we don't know what happened and the ancient Greeks didn't know what happened either this Greek dark age was an era of material poverty cultural isolation extreme famine population decline and artistic decline but what we have to rely on is largely on the archaeological research of artifacts and what is able to be recovered there's no script telling us what happened there's no script saying that this happened, this happened and now we're just screwed nothing We're just speculating. We're relying on archaeologists a lot more than than a lot of other times in history that we have to to rely on. The ironworking is one of the technological innovations that truly stands out during this time period, though. So much so that the Greek Dark Age is also known as the Early Iron Age. So we went from the Bronze Age into the Iron Age. Ironworking seems to have been imported and not developed there, though, meaning that they were bringing some of it in. But the different metalworking methods during the Dark Age show signs of technical deficiencies in warlike items at several sites. And we're gonna get into that part a little bit more later on. It's later on in this episode. Now, if we look back, more than a century before this collapse into the Dark Times, and one of the past episodes of this amazing podcast, there is evidence of conflict and instability in the Aegean in this whole entire area. Remember when we talked about the Dorian Greek and the Ionian Greeks? I hope you guys do, if not, you might want to stop this episode and go listen to that one real quick, then come back to this one after you listen to the Troy one, then you'll be kind of caught up. The Dorian and the Ionian Greeks. There also seems to be quite a bit of earthquakes happening this time. After a destructive earthquake around 1200 BC, Mycenae, the main capital, gets a giant wall built. And then they initiated others to build some sort of fortifications and walls. We have Athens and Tyrans and Kala. They began to do this giant fortification and extending of fortifications as much as they can because they were afraid maybe. We don't know. We just know that stuff started being built. Not progressive, just built. Building walls. Now it is possible that one of these cities made a wall that closed off the Isthmus of Corinth probably to control the only access to the land to the Peloponese people. That's a big possibility, separating the whole group of people in the uh, Greek land. Now, 1200 BC is the accepted date of the start of the destruction of several of the major centers of the Mycenaean civilization. And about 100 years later, the Mycenaean people in the capital, they abandoned the citadel after a series of fires. But there are a lot of archaeological records showing significant changes until about a century after this, meaning that much of the culture that was built up did persist after the palace centers were kaput, but the actual start of the Greek Dark Age does not have a single fixed point. No documented records, it's just not possible for us to know the exact time when something happens. Some scholars say that the Dark Age was between 1200 BC and 800 BC. Then we have others that say 1100 B.C. and 776 B.C., kind of specific. And then other others say 1000 B.C. to 750 B.C. Any one of these estimates would be accepted because, heck, we don't flipping know. There's just no way to tell. There's no documents. We don't no idea. But you can see the time frame is around the 300-year mark. Now, on my screen right now, and hopefully when I post this onto the Instas of Grams, This table gives you a great look at showing multiple events happening in almost every century, which is why scholars have these guesses at the start and end of the Dark Ages. So as we look at this, I'll run through this real quick. The Bronze Age of Greece. Slash the Mycenaean civilization goes through destructions of different levels of Troy that we already talked about in the last episode. And then around eleven eighty BC is the final destruction of the last layer of Troy. Remember we talked about the layers of Troy? Remember that scientist slash historian slash archaeologist Schleiman? his name is fun to say. He discovered different layers of Troy. The last layer of Troy was destroyed around eleven 80 BC and then 1177 BC we have something interesting happening elsewhere in the world the sea people are defeated by Ramses III now I think I've mentioned the sea people in previous episodes I'm not entirely sure maybe I need to dedicate an entire episode to the sea people but I don't know if that's gonna be needed the sea people were a seafaring people imagine that Sea people anyways what they really did was just damage throughout the world mainly the eastern Anatolia area, the place that the Mycenaean peoples had claimed for themselves. Uh, There was Syria, Palestine, Cyprus, but they even made it to Egypt. And then there are the ones held responsible for the destruction of old powers, such as the Hittite Empire, which we haven't talked too much about the Hittite Empire. We'll do that in a later episode as well. But this abrupt break in the ancient Middle Eastern records as a result of the invasions make the precise extent and origin of the peoples remain pretty much uncertain. We don't know exactly what's going on. Just like what we are talking about with the Greek Dark Ages, the main origin of evidence there is about the Sea Peoples is based on Egyptian texts and illustrations. There's other records from Hittite sources, but mainly the Egyptians. In fact, the Egyptians waged two wars against the Sea Peoples who would just take over and destroy everything. The first war was in 1236 to 1223, bc with king merpta yeah that's how you pronounce it he's of egypt I, I said it correctly and then the second one was during the reign of ramses iii which was 1198 to 1166 bc a time period we're trying to find why the collapse of greece and the dark ages had happened it is possible that this is a, a big part of it the sea people were defeated by ramses causing a chain reaction of things Now this is even more interesting though, so listen closely. In the Egyptian documents, the Egyptians identified the Sea Peoples as Equish, which is a group of Bronze Age Greeks. They also identified them as Teresa, known later to later Greeks as sailors and pirates from Anatolia. They also called them Luca, which is a coastal people of Western Anatolia, and Peleset, generally believed to be referring to the Philistines. perhaps came from crete and were the only major tribe of the sea peoples to settle permanently in palestine the egyptians were calling the sea peoples greek these areas i was talking about these areas that i just mentioned uh, when i say the bronze age greeks that's the mycenaean peoples when they talk about the luca people that is people from western anatolia which is guess what a part of ancient greece they were calling the sea people Greek but could it be that the sea peoples were a big part of causing Greece to fall into darkness it's possible very interesting isn't it now the ending dates that I mentioned earlier uh in that previous part they were either in conjunction with the first Olympian games or more of the middle geometric period either way our focus is this stint of time between it all that's what we're going to be focusing on in this episode that Dark Age of Greece, what they were doing, how they were surviving. We don't know what caused it. We can speculate. We'll talk about that, too. But that's what we're talking about. So, listen up. Now. You, you didn't hear that, I promise. It's just the seltzer water. My throat was running out from the last recording part. Focus, people. We're talking about ancient Greece. Now, the collapse of, or the collapse aftermath that has been found shows that there is no evidence that these Mycenaean palaces were even built, meaning that there was nothing that was huge. It was, you know, nothing that was showing very much on what was going on. It is clear, however, that some of the sites were reoccurred meaning that in some cases they were attempts to build a new structure, but no real attempt to rebuild the old palaces. The ones that were built were huge. They got destroyed, and then people were like, meh, I don't, I don't feel like it today, so we're not going to do that. At Mycenae, the main capital area that we've been talking about, the uppermost terraces were abandoned. A part of the citadel was reacquired, rebuilt, basically. At Demeni, there are parts of the palatial complex where they were partially restored, but then they were abandoned soon afterwards. It looks like they just started putting up a wall. Maybe some guy put up a couple of rocks, went to sleep, came back the next day, said those rocks are too heavy. Nah, I'm done, and they just left. There were some Mycenaean pottery that was discovered throughout mainland Greece and the Mycenaean burials that persisted, but nothing as grand as what was before. And we're going to be talking about these burials and these potteries that were discovered because this is what we have to go off of to find out what the flip was happening the main things that are seen from this period of time were generally small and scattered across the landscape I meaning there's not these large fortresses or these large walls remaining fully intact or being re- redone, rebuilt it's spread it's weird what, what happens all I'm trying to say even in Crete Remember when we talked about the Crete people, the Minoans, the island of Crete? Anyways, even in Crete, the Bronze Age settlements were abandoned, and a new pattern of these areas emerged. There was more new sites on remote and easily defensible areas that came to be. Instead of the main central areas, they were spread out. They were remote. They were trying to make it more defensible. Something was attacking, is what we can assume. And these areas were not occupied prior to 1200 bc so we know that these people left the people left the big cities to be more remote than they were before they wanted to leave right around 1200 bc what the crap's happening don't know it's almost like something caused them to scatter some type of monstrous thing that is fun to imagine but we don't need to talk about it just yet now the site of carfi is a great example of this most of it lies over 1,000 meters above sea level. And it appears as if they, the, the people of Carfi, didn't freely choose to move here or to, to leave this area. It's a spot that's so difficult to access that moving to this place wasn't like, okay, honey, let's grab our stuff and just meander around until we find a good spot and call it good. No, it was more of a forced move. It's almost, it almost seems like they were trying to escape and trying to make are trying to find a place that they could defend themselves from something they had circumstances that they were reacting to maybe it was linked to a defensive forces that were or they were trying to defend from forces that were trying to get in or some other strategic reasons we don't know there are more than 100 sites just like this one that hasn't been recorded in crete alone on that island not a giant island just an island Now, with this living area change thingy that we see throughout the Aegean, basically, there are multiple of other things that changed as a result of it. A second ago, I talked about the burial practices. Well, guess what? The burial practices changed. You wouldn't think that, but they did. By about 1100 BC, there are a number of changes identified affecting burials. Now, in many regions, the custom of burial was in family vaults multiple areas for the deceased. But now this is replaced by a single new burial practice. Not multiple different types, just one. And cremation became the new hip thing in some of these areas where it wasn't as popular as it was before. Regional variations in burial practice was identified and also different practices coexisting within the same community, meaning that in one community, there's a group of people that stuck with one, another group stuck with another type of practice but they stuck with that. Before it was interchangeable. It was, let's do this, let's try this, let's do this. These communities were trying to stick with one thing. Now, four main places that chose these different ways. There's Attica, which was Athens, a place called Euboea, which is known as Lefkandi, which we're going to talk about in a little bit, Thessaly, and then there's also Crete. Now, let's discuss this, shall we? Heck, yes, we shall, because this is fascinating. In Athens, inhumation, inhumation, I don't know what inhumation is inhumation in in pit and ca- uh, graves was a dominant burial practice uh, bear, being buried buried on the ground now this is prior to 1050 BC between 1100 and 1050 BC yes only 50 years similar burial practices were used in Athens and Salamis and both places show little grave evidence for wealth distinction meaning no fancy graves that much of the world's wealthy people would have, like the Egyptians and their pyramids and such. that They have the tall, pointy things. Now, during the proto-geometric period, the time at the start of the Dark Ages, this is before the geometric age that we're going to talk about in a later episode, cremation became the main funerary practice, and the incinerated remains were then placed inside an amphora. Now, amphora is a jar with two vertical handles, which is mainly used for storage and transportation of food stuff, but now it's being used to hold people's ashes. This 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 jar-like thing is a big part of trade for sure, and so why not? They had a lot to use. They weren't trading as much, so they used those instead of using it for food and, and trade. Now then, this amphora was placed inside a pit along with some grave goods filled with earth and then covered by a stone slab this was the common thing that they were doing at this time now we're going to take a side step real quick we're going to talk about a fun side fact about these these jars because i think it's i think it's pretty great now when it comes to greek mythology zeus and pandora specifically zeus gave pandora a small box on her wedding day but told her never to open it we know the box as pandora's box imagine that Pandora was created to be curious and whatnot, not and eventually opened the box because she just could not resist. And out of the box flew horrible evils such as sickness, death, poverty, and sadness that inflicted humans. Thanks a lot, Pandora. How dare you. Now, here's the twist to the story. We know it as Pandora's box. When you hear that, that's the common thing. Yeah, Pandora's box. Well, The actual story is not Pandora's box no 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 my dear listeners it wasn't a box at all in fact it was a completely different type of container called a jar now I mentioned that they're called amphoras there's also another name for them in ancient Greek it's called pithos but thanks to a 16th century humanist named Erasmus the Latin account of the story of Pandora when he was translating from ancient Greek to Latin He changed, or I think he made a whoopsies, the word pithos to pixis. Pixis means box. And so he translated the ancient Greek to Latin and made a mistranslation. And the rest is, I guess you could say history, because this is a history podcast. But it's actually Pandora's Jar. But we know it's, anyways. Continuing on, that's just a fun story I like to talk about. Now when it came to gender distinction, we already talked about wealth distinctions. I didn't really have anything like that. But when it came to gender distinctions, the Athenians really emphasized this. There were weapons and large type of armoring things that were linked to men, while jewelry and amphorae those jars, were connected to women. And then by the late 8th century BC, inhumation became the dominant thing to do with burials once again. Like I said, inhumation means burying the dead. Yes, I looked it up. I'm not embarrassed to admit that I had no idea what it was when I was first reading doing my research for this episode. Now let's move over to a place called Lefkandi. In Lefkandi, Lefkhandi, however you want to pronounce it, it's a village on the coast of the island of Iboa. Yeah, that's also how you say it. It's also known as Zeropolis. Zeropolis? Yep, that sounds better. Zeropolis. And it overlooks Euripos, which is a main water channel used quite often for trade and such. They use both in this place, they used cremation and inhumation for burial practices. But there were variations of both that they used. They used different variations of cremation, they used different variations of inhumation. Cremated remains could be placed into a cyst or left on the pyre, the the, the fire pile. And then inhumation could take place in a cyst, you know, pit in the ground, or could be in shaft graves. BT dubs assist as an ancient coffin or burial chamber, either made from stone or a hollow tree. That's what assist is, anyways. And in some towns of this place, pit inhumation were recorded under house floors. Yeesh, that would be an interesting place to live if, if that happened. Now, at a place called Eretria near Lefkandi, a mix of cremation and inhumation was found in the same cemetery, meaning that they were. Trying both things out. So, their burial practices had been changed, but in this place, they were a little bit more reluctant to change. They were still trying to practice two different types. Now, as we move over to a place called Thessaly, there are some aspects of Mycenaean burial practices that, were, that persisted here, like small Tholos tombs, super used during Mycenaean times, the most popular way to, to bury somebody, but it also cost time and money. And they continued this throughout. The dark age now several cyst graves or several cyst cemeteries are recorded mainly used for children in the beginning and this included burials in rock cut chamber tombs so they're trying to expand out into different types of tombs they could create other practices include slab covered pits that were dug in the floor of a vaulted chamber some of them containing cremated remains There were cremation in cysts and pyres grouped together and covered by a communal tumulus or a mount of dirt and stuff. And then in Crete, there were chamber tombs used in some areas like Knossos, which we talked about earlier, where collective burial was the norm. But many of the chamber tombs that were found in this place were abandoned after no more than about two generations gender and age distinction was huge here throughout Grave Goods, but this practice ended and was abandoned by about the 10th century BC. Now that we know a bit about the afterlife of the aftermath of the beginning of the Dark Age, how were these settlements actually set up? Well, we know that the big palatial palaces everywhere were pretty much just abandoned. People moved to try and escape something and use more natural fortifications instead of relying on what could be built. We see a dramatic population decline in in Greece during this time, in the Greek Dark Age. Now this is reflected by the reduction in the number of settlements that we see, and it can be identified as being around 1100 BC that these decline happens. The number of recorded sites and cemeteries of Greece during this time and before and after <laughs> clearly show this. This is a consist. This is consistent with the figures proposed by um, a guy named Anthony Snodgrass. Yeah, it's pretty awesome last name for an archaeologist. I'm just saying. Well, he was able to do is propose an idea about the number of occupied sites in Greece identified by different pottery styles, not just the grave sites. We know about the grave sites, but now we're going to talk about the pottery because the pottery has been left over. Now, what his proposal is and what he's been able to find is that in in the 13th century BC, based on the Mycenaean uh, a type of pottery called 3B, There are 320 sites that were occupied according to the pottery that was found. Now move to the next century, the 12th century BC, based on pottery that has a different style called 3C. There's only 130 sites that were occupied from the pottery that was found. And now let's go down to the 10th century BC. This is based on the semi and early proto-geometric pottery. 40 sites were occupied huge decline from 320 to 40 in just about three centuries or so pretty incredible what happened there now you can see how drastically and dramatically of a, a decline just happens in this time and in some areas of greece such as laconia and the southern argolid very few archaeological finds have been identified for the period of 1100 to 1000 bc meaning that there's just crap all defined. And then there are a few sites that were things that were found are small compared to previous times. You can already tell, only about 40 sites contained pottery. An English historian and archaeologist named Vincent Desborough probably does how I pronounce his name, but that's how I'm pronouncing it. He has estimated a sharp population decline by 1100 BC and he says about one-tenth of what it had been a little over a century ago. Side note, this Vincent fella, this is a fun fact for all you people out there, As of today, in the year 2020, he's still alive at 107 years old. Way to go, Vincent. Hang in there, man. Now, we have a great picture that was created by Christian Violati. It's a visual showing us the population decline of Greece, which I'm going to be posting on Instas for you all to see, too. It's quite dramatic change you can see, going from dense populated areas and populations near the shores to just a few spots. But what's amazing even more is that it's scattered it's insanely how much it's scattered out to places that nobody had visited before. Now, as I stated earlier, the settlements during the Dark Ages were small. They were scattered across the landscape. They were trying to rely on natural fortifications. And the variety of material culture showed signs of impoverishment when compared to the earlier Mycenaean times. A different picture can be seen at the site of Lefkandi in Yoboa, which was considered the richest site in Greece around 1000 BC, Lefkandi has produced evidence of foreign contacts from Cyprus and the Near East. It also shows building buildings that rank well above any other contemporary building in Greece. Now, that might sound pretty amazing. That might sound, okay, Lefkandi had their stuff together. They knew what they were doing during the dark age. But Lefkandi, they actually rank very, very below the level of sophistication of the Mycenaean architecture. If you compare Lefkandi... Being at the height, the the height of the uh, Dark Age, versus Mycenaean, it's no contest. Mycenaean architecture and everything is a lot better, a lot more sophisticated than candy has ever been. This is just proving that they were hit by something huge, which drove all the people into poverty, which drove people into insanity, basically. Now the Greek material culture in general became even more poor during the Dark Ages. They were less innovative, and as I stated before, there's a huge lack in artisticness. One big part of any ancient culture that archeologists rely on is pottery. We've been talking about that for the last little bit. The pottery that was found is gives us an idea into the past. Not very much, but enough that we can kind of tell they were not living the rich lives that the Mycenaeans were, were living. Now, luckily, even though the Dark Ages did see this great decline in innovation, the pottery was still there there were some little bit tweaks that they had made and this is how we're able to know like i said the lives of these people the pottery styles throughout greece during the dark age saw the emergence of what's called regional variations meaning that from one place to another there's little tweaks little difference that they were ma- making which is very different than the Mycenaean time when the pottery was uh, the, the despite pottery was a very stylistic stylistic unit meaning that it was Something you could take from one place to another, and it would be the same type of thing. You'd be able to see the same cup in Mycenae that if you traveled to someplace else, hey, look, they sell the same, same thing here. They had a lot of trade. Now it's very different according to the regions. Now, as the Dark Age went on, the whole pottery industry decreased its quality. And with this decrease, people sought new styles that were easier for them to make themselves instead of relying on businesses to create pottery for them. That's why we see this change. We see people being more self-reliant. Abstract decoration began dominating the pottery styles of the Dark Age. Abstract meaning strange. Just kidding. Abstract just means abstract. The artworks led on, left on the pottery in Mycenaean times were very figurative, showing real events and real battles that occurred, telling a story. In the Dark Age, it was pretty much absent. It's It's pottery with some weird lines on it and it's not until the later stages of the geometric period that this artwork finally returns now i said geometric which is after the proto geometric and right before that is the dark age so a lot of time periods after it's not till then it returns if that makes any sense there are only a few examples of figurative art in pottery that have been recorded during this time by mycenaean and in the late geometrics between that time don't know if i said that part Anyways, very few, if not none at all. Now, by 1125 BC, Attica saw the emergence of a local style known as, quotations again, y'all, Sub-Mycenaean. Now, this is seen in other regions, but it shows significant variations again. Think of the first part of Sub-Mycenaean. The sub part of it is basically meaning subpar or not as good. So when you look into history books, you look onto the websites, if you were to type into the Googles and say, dark age of Greece pottery, you're going to see the words Sub-Mycenaean. Subpar, basically. In Left Candy, I told you we were going to talk about this place a lot, it displays a poor quality when it, when it's compared to Attica. In Argolid, there are differences in quality between different sites. sub style in general is just below standard of the late Mycenaean style when it comes to materials and painting quality. These styles lasted until about 1050 BC, which was, which were then replaced by into the uh, proto-geometric style and then from 950 to 900 BC this is the proto-geometric style that was the most popular style in Greece but there were some areas that this proto-geometric style is not shown it's pretty much absent the places are Elis, Laconia, Arcadia, Samos, Chios, Lesbos, Macedonia which is a place we're going to talk about for a little bit later on because there's an important person from Macedonia that we need to Talk about but explored, then also in Sicily and Italy. Now, remember, this is before the Romans, and so the Greeks had quite a lot of area in the empire, even before it was declared an actual empire. The Mycenaean Age had a lot of land. There is also an absence of proto geometric style on the eastern part of Crete, that island that was pretty much the start of the Greeks. Instead, they used what was called sub-Minoan. Remember we talked about the Minoans? Minoans? Minoans. Sub-Minoans, so subpar pottery from the Minoan age. From 900 BC and onwards, the geometric style, meaning the past the proto-geometric style, which takes place right before the geometric, this geometric style gradually emerges until it is replaced completely all earlier styles by 750 BC. Meaning that the the geometric style was the one that everybody wanted and everything just kind of went away people just threw it it was trashed it was buried whatever luckily archaeologists are able to find that now now this is pretty much everywhere except in Macedonia interesting Macedonia was not that far from Greece we don't want to get into the history of Macedonia just yet or you can also pronounce it Macedonia but it's Macedonia Uh, but we we will be spending some time in Macedonia in the future with a a guy named alex or you guys might know him as uh alexander insert winky face here i'm winking if you guys can tell it's alexander the great i was trying to give you guys hints and see if you could guess it now around 725 bc the pro-corinthian style emerges in corinth and shortly after other fully figurative styles were also detected in crete So there is some movement in terms of forward thinkers and some similarities to the Mycenaean area. We're seeing some progress, but it is taking centuries to do this. Centuries and centuries where, like I was mentioning before, comparing the last two to 300 years in the United States, there's been a lot of progressive thinkers and a lot of things happening. And these guys, it took a long time just to start getting things together. the way that we can look at the regional variation of pottery being considered a loss reduction is in the level of contact between the different groups alive at the time typically the styles of decoration are borrowed or exchanged and copied during groups that trade often together and interact with each other a lot you could say that some people like this style and they'll take it back to their village or their town and then that spreads out so that's a unifying type of style that you see with these big places that are over exceedingly wealthy and doing great. Now, the lack of an overall unifying artistic tradition linked to the absence of a dominant political unit in Greece could also be a big factor to consider when trying to explain these differences seen in the decline of the peoples. This Greek Dark Age is not something that scholars and archaeologists have just now began studying. In fact, several decades ago, a lot of scholars had a different view on the Greek Dark Age compared to our current understandings. It was believed that the Mycenaean civilization fell after several waves of invasions by different groups who brought violence and chaos to the sophisticated people of Mycenae. I put my hands up in the air like when I said sophisticated. I don't know why I did that. That's interesting. Dark Age, that term, was a suitable analogy for this apocalyptic type of view of a complex society being torn apart by nomads, entering Greece and downgrading Greece and the people to an age of savagery. This view was supported by ancient accounts of the Dorian invaders, the Dorian Greeks we talked about in the episodes before and earlier in this episode. Basically, they're saying that the Dorian Greek, who did not value art and culture, but rather war and violence, came to Greece, where the Ionians were, and the Ionians were valuing art and culture highly. Dorians just came through and destroyed them and were the sole purpose for the collapse of the Mycenaean's lifestyle. William Durant, no relation to Kevin Durant, the basketball fellow, wrote a book called The Life of Greece, The Story of Civilization, where he talks about this exact thing. And he writes, the Dorians were still in the herding and hunting stage. Their main reliance was upon their cattle, whose need for new pasturage kept the tribes ever on the move. The hard metal of their swords and the souls gave them a merciless supremacy over Achaeans and Cretans, who still used bronze to kill. The Dorians put the ruling classes to the swords and turned the Mycenaean remnant into helot serfs. The surviving Achaeans fled, every man, feeling unsafe, carried arms, increasing violence, disrupting agriculture and trade on the land, and commerce on the sea. War flourished, poverty deepened, and spread. Life became unsettled as families wandered from country to country, seeking security and peace." End of quote there. So it's easy to see how these scholars came to this conclusion. It's easy to see this Mr. Durant fella making this, I wouldn't say accusation, but this proposal. Scholars in the past took the ancient accounts of the Dorians and other invading groups at face value. Everything that we know about the Dorians is that they like to fight. Everything we know about the Sea Peoples, they like to take over and fight. They read some text about people being violent and said, "Mm Mm-hmm, that's what happened. No doubt. There it is. We didn't weep suckers, that's what it is. And that makes sense because of what has been left from this area. There's no documentation of the people, just some, not many artifacts that archaeologists have said, this is strange, this dates back to this time, but this other piece of pottery that looks really nice dates back even before this one does. That's not how people in history do stuff unless something big thing happened, WTF. And then the scholars were like, well obviously these Dorians were mean and brutal and just took over, plus they didn't like to write stuff down, so it makes sense. Yeah, I mean, it does kind of make a little bit of sense. But what's important with history is having a critical view. Having a critical view as a historian means being open to possibilities. Yes, I know that is not the exact meaning to it, but that's the basics of it. These historians, rather than having a critical view on these sources, they looked for evidence that could confirm their validity. They only looked for things that made it sound like they were right. And as a result, it was proposed that some of the archaeological evidence found around 1200 BC was a reflection of these newcomers to the land of Greece, these Dorians. Single burials and cremations were seen as an intrusive new element in the archaeological record. The historians associated this with the Dorians, and these were understood as new funerary practices and alien to the Mycenaean world. The Mycenaeans would never do this, is what they were thinking. They were just introduced by a group of invading tribes just trying to get confirmation of the ancient account based on invading groups and that's all they were trying to do on the website worldhistory.org they speak about the of obsession with blaming it all on the dorian greeks an article titled greek dark age in their world history encyclopedia they say this from 1960s century this ad um, onwards the archaeological world on the greek dark age has been increasingly significantly and many of the old assumptions have been challenged. Some burials, for example, have been identified throughout the Mycenaean period at Argos. Cremation, another intrusive quotations there, element, has also been recorded during Mycenaean times in western Anatolia, Attica, and even in Italy. This means that there that we have no reasons to believe that the, those funerary expressions that were interpreted as the past, in the past, as proof of invading groups entering Greece might actually have been an indigenous Mycenaean origin, or even an origin in neighboring regions with strong commercial links to Mycenaean world, such as Italy. It may be that the caste that Dorian tribes migrated into Greece around the time of the Mycenaean collapse, and it might be also possible that they played roles in the collapse itself. But the point is that the evidence for it is far from conclusive, and it has no solid archaeological basis. End quote right there. Now, one thing I like to point out here is specifically about these Dorian tribes, these people that are being blamed for things. If you remember from an earlier episode, I told you all the location of where these Dorian tribes were from. This area is better known by one specific city called Sparta, like the movie 300. Now, we know that these people were in this area. They, They prized war, they prized fighting above what the Ionians had prized. They had armies they that they would send out into battles whereas the Ionians, mainly people from athens would send out colonies to spread their, spread their culture but an important part of this is that even though sparta was a warrior society we know that for a fact it didn't reach its height of power until the peloponnesian war in the fourth century bc so it's hard to create justification for this it's hard to say that these people that were known as spartans they were back then they're known as the Dorians they're the ones that created armies and they're the ones that destroyed everything can't really be proven because the only proof that we have of a Spartan army was in the 4th century and so was it a bunch of wars that caused the fall of this ancient Greek civilization known as Mycenaean maybe it was invading tribes that just wanted to expand their land for the herds of sheep and they just had better weapons maybe not invading tribes but a certain group of people called the Sea Peoples or maybe it was some sort of famine thing that happened I think the one cause I'd like to do more research on, or have more people do research on, for the complete loss of a civilization is the theory on repeated earthquakes and volcanoes, natural disasters. If you remember, this was the main destruction of the Minoan people we talked about in episode 30. The Minoan people were destroyed by events from a great volcano eruption that created the island of Thera and caused tsunamis and ash and destruction and just death. What's to say something similar didn't happen here, but instead of just one giant volcano, it was repeated eruptions from smaller volcanoes. They would continually throw ash into the air. We know that there were earthquakes happening around this time, and typically earthquakes are followed by volcanic eruptions, so just what happens? The main population of people moved from tightly-lived cities to far, far, far away farmlands away from these cities. They spread out across the land to be able to sustain themselves. With repeated ash in the air, this causes the sunlight to be more dim. And if you don't have sunlight, it's more difficult to grow crops. The dim light over the cities from the ash made the people now cold and not very happy. They weren't being able to live their best lives. They left the cities. People were realizing that they couldn't survive off of whatever business was brought into the cities and they had to be more self-sustaining. They were suffering in the cities and had to move. And the people that tried staying in the cities, the ones that knew how to write, the ones that were recording events, the ones that had prized artistic abilities to create pottery and art, they had no way to care for themselves when they were in these cities when everyone else had left, causing starvation, causing famine, and also it would be literally a darkness in Greece because of the ash in the air making it dark. I think this is a very strong possibility of events that pushed the Mycenaean mm-hmm. civilization over the edge I could be wrong but you have to admit it, it kind of does make a little bit of sense and I'm not the only one that thinks about this but believe what you may remember having a critical view on history is not a bad thing especially when there's pretty much no written record of a time period critical views are important to have throughout history With this perished Mycenaean civilization of Greece, we have reached the end of the Bronze Age culture, including the end of the Greek Dark Ages, which could be considered the early Iron Age, which was a recordless transitional period in time that leads us into the archaic Greece, where significant shifts occurred from palace-centralized to decentralized forms of socioeconomic organization. Yes, that is from Wikipedia section on this you. You're welcome. Now, the next episode, we're going to be exploring the archaic period slash geometric periods of Greece, a time of artistic development, a time of political and economical growth, the creation of the Greek alphabet, and some more wars and stuff that happens with the Persians, who we have not discussed very much, so we might intertwine some Persian history in there. Now, because that's that's really interesting stuff to, to me, you know, I like to explore different parts of history. We will also be going into some detail about the heroic age of Greece. I'm not gonna go into too much about the heroic age, but let's just say a little bit more about the mythological side, which a lot of people find fascinating and I find it pretty fascinating. We will also be exploring the life of someone quite important important in history. Not just Greek history, but history throughout the world. Someone who lived most likely directly after the end of the Dark Ages, if not in the middle And he goes by the name of Homer, which we've already talked about him because we did the whole Odyssey and Iliad thing. But it is now time for another end to another amazing episode of A Step Into History. But don't you cry? Yes, I know. The time between the episodes seems to be growing further and further apart. But there's just so much to research before I can even prepare an episode. It's a lot of work in progress, and and I am a work in progress. And so it'll, it'll get better, I promise. Thank you all for listening, whether it be on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, or whatever podcast player you listen on. Because guess what? This podcast is on a lot of platforms. If you have any questions slash comments or just want to chat about history stuff, you can email me at stepintohistory.podcast at gmail.com or just find me in real life. Either way, that works for with me. Now, as a new tradition in this podcast, as you might have noticed the last few episodes, let us end this episode with a quote from a person from this period of time. The guy that goes by the name of Homer. There is a time for many words, and there's also time for a sleep. And I'm going to go with his advice here, and I'm going to say good night, everybody. Thanks for listening.